preacher for today. It's our elder and friend, Andrew Perrin. Andrew, come on up. Andrew is the husband of Abby and, uh, and the father of Sam and Leah, and we're gr- glad to have Andrew here. He's one of our current elders on our session, serving a three-year term. And uh, Andrew has preached before, but I wanted to introduce him in case you weren't here when he did preach before and just let him get to know you a little bit and for you uh, to get to know him. And so that'll be fun. Andrew is finishing out our series on Ruth, and we're glad to have him today. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thanks, Scott. And thank you all for having me this morning. I'm I'm really excited to be here to finish out Ruth. This has been a book uh, for me in the last several years that has been really meaningful. So it feels especially uh, special, that sounds repetitive for me, to to be here and to to close it out. And in a move that is very un-Jerry-like, Jerry has left the best part of the story to a guest speaker. And uh, so, as we all know, Jerry's usual MO is to leave kind of a dry or difficult passage for a guest speaker. Uh, Scott, can I get an amen? And uh, he did not do that today, which is good, because I need all the help I can get. So we've got a strong passage, a strong ending, and I'm really excited to be part of, of telling that story. And I debated whether to recap the story. I know, especially with summer, a lot of us are traveling and are not here every week. Um, and I was going to actually call out someone to embarrass him, but he's not even here this morning, so I won't do that. But uh, knowing that we've had some gaps, I do think what we'll do is start with the end of the story and in, re- and in kind of going through and unpacking the meaning, I'll retell it. Um, so I think we'll just go through that once. But before I do that, I just want to reiterate that within Ruth and especially within this chapter, there's two key themes that you see over and over in its relationship and its redemption. And actually, I just, in chapter four, I looked, redeem shows up at least 10 times by my quick count um, last night in looking through it. And so you see those themes over and over. Um, And where we jump in today at chapter four, uh, just a quick context for where we were is Ruth and Naomi have made it back to Bethlehem in Israel with nothing, right? And, and, And no plans other than knowing that there's this relative of Naomi's named Boaz who could potentially marry Ruth and redeem the family. So their plan is for Ruth to marry Boaz and and hopefully have a a happy ending to the story. We finished last week not knowing what that end outcome would be. And in the first part, and actually at the end of last week, even Boaz suggested that there was another relative who maybe could be the redeemer for them. He said, there's actually a closer relative. Why don't you check with him first? In the first half of chapter four, they do that. And it finds out that this relative is not willing to buy the debt and assume the the family debt in, in redeeming them. So Boaz steps up to the plate and chooses to marry Ruth. And so that's where we will pick up the story of Ruth in chapter four, verses nine through 17. Read with me, please. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi, or bought from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. 
Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's in your word. Lord, I pray that today we would uncover the truth, that our hearts would be open to applying that truth to our lives. And in the process, I pray that each of us would be shaped more like you. I pray that our time together would be pleasing in your sight, and may you bless this time. In your name we pray, amen. So those of you who know me or know what I do may be surprised to learn that I was an English major. So my professional path has been somewhat circuitous since that time, because to be honest, if you're an English major, that's what happens, right? And as a quick aside, for any graduating seniors or college students here today who are maybe considering a somewhat foolhardy degree, I'm happy to talk with you after the service and maybe share some wisdom um, along the way from, from my own path. Uh, but all kidding aside, I really am thankful for the, the, the background I got through that English major. Um, one primary reason I'm thankful is through English, I actually met my wife. So we met in the most romantic circumstances of 20th century American novel. Um, and so that's where our, uh, our relationship began and one of the greatest blessings in my life began. So English to me has been a very good thing in that it gave me my family. Uh, but secondly, it also really helped shape the way I, I looked at the world. And I enjoy literature, I enjoy reading, I, I enjoy the concepts of it. And one of the things we learned uh, that we were taught through literary criticism is the ability to take one kind of critical style in a lens of looking at a text, and the way you would look at it, the perspective you had would shape the meaning. So we, we had to do assignments where you would take a feminist or a Marxist or a deconstructive perspective and look at the same exact either you know, novel or passage, and each three of those perspectives would yield a totally different meaning. I think today, as we look at Ruth in its totality, we have a similar phenomenon because there's the idea of the Redeemer, right? And this idea of the Redeemer is so present throughout the passage and throughout the, uh, the entire book, but the way you look at it or the point in which you look at it is, a, is very similar um, to, the, to that, that thought of you get a different answer. And I want to propose today that there's actually four uh, different redeemers in this story who emerge. And I'll kind of go through each one of those chronologically so I don't confuse you. There's a ton of names. Um, and as I joked at the beginning, again, especially in the summer, a lot of us have not sat through all of the three previous uh, sermons on Ruth. So I'll go through it chronologically and just show how each person plays a different role as Redeemer as we get to this kind of amazing conclusion. 
And the first redeemer that we see in this story actually has happened behind the scenes before the story even begins. And that person is Naomi. And Naomi, when we meet her, you know, is not super likable. In many ways, she's kind of whiny, despondent, ungrateful, but she's in a really tough spot. And if you think about what she's been when the story of Ruth begins, right, she's lost her and her, her husband and her sons had moved from their hometown of Israel, their homeland in Israel, and had moved to Moab because of a famine. So they sold their property, they moved to try to go where the prospects were better, and in the process they met an equally disastrous fate. Her husband and her sons have died, and she's left really without any options. Um, And in that society and in that culture, her options for kind of a sustainable life are pretty much non-existent, right? In that time, she could marry, but she's too old to remarry. She could work, but she's too old to work. She's too old to have children. So her prospects are pretty dim. Um, And so it's easy to understand why she is so empty, why she's so bitter. Um, But what's interesting is that Ruth chooses to, to stick with her. And so Naomi has a champion kind of in her corner, if you will. She has someone there to help her out of this tough spot, and that person's Ruth. And we'll, we'll get to Ruth in a minute. Um, but you have to ask yourself, why would Ruth leave her hometown, her own life? Ruth was young enough, she could do all three of those options I mentioned earlier, right? She could probably successfully restart her life in Moab, where everything's familiar, where she has connections, where she has roots, why would she go with Naomi, who's candidly just been a Debbie Downer, and go into a life of almost certain suffering? And I think the key to seeing why she's done this is actually then points to why Naomi has a redemptive and kind of redeemer role in this process. If you go to Ruth uh, chapter 1, 16 through 17, um, you have this famous declaration that Ruth makes, right? So Ruth, we actually have it on the front of the bulletin. And it says, this is Ruth talking to Naomi. When Naomi said, please stay here, uh, you don't have to go with me. Ruth responds and she says, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And we've stopped that. That's where the, the, the quote stops in the, on the front of the bulletin. And Jerry mentioned that's actually pretty common to have in weddings um, and in other uh, situations like that. But Ruth's statement continues. And you can see why that is conveniently kind of left off out of a wedding proclamation, because it is kind of a downer. She says, uh, picking up from there, she says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And the key to the meaning here is in that may the Lord. So if you've studied Old Testament literature, whenever you see Lord in all caps, it's usually large uh, L and then a smaller but all caps O-R-D, that is actually referring to the true name of God, to Yahweh, right? To the name that was given to Abraham in I am, right? So it was a very intimate way, so revered that the, the Israelites wouldn't even say it out loud. They would just write the, the, uh, the, the words for it. And so by saying this, Ruth is essentially communicating, hey, God is my God, right? This isn't a, I'll go with your, you know, little God, or he's one option, I'll stick with you. You clearly see that Ruth, because of Naomi, now has kind of a redeeming faith in the one true God. And because of that faith, that faith is what prompts her to stick with Naomi. 
So in this first part, even before we ever begin, you see that Ruth, or sorry, that Naomi is the first redeemer, right? She has invested in Ruth. She brought a, a stranger into her family. And again, they keep saying Ruth the Moabite, right? She brought in a foreigner into her family and through a compelling life of faith has obviously uh, shared that with Ruth, that it's become Ruth's own faith. Um, and so Naomi is the first redeemer we see in this story. But as a, as a result of that, Ruth then can become the second redeemer. And I think Ruth, obviously the, the, the book is named after her. So all these other actors in the story, Ruth is the most compelling, right? Because Ruth has this option. She's really the key part to this whole plan. And so she fully redeems Naomi. After Naomi invested in her, Ruth sticks with her. She goes down a really uncertain and highly, you know, probability. A lot of people suggest that Ruth thought she was going into just kind of a, a certain kind of doomsday, but she went willingly because of the faith that Naomi had shared with her. Um, and you can see how fully she redeems at the end of this story. We see the ending today, right? But by the end of this story, Naomi, who had called herself Mara, which was what? Does anyone remember what Mara meant? Bitter. Good job, Mike, the front row listener, you can tell. But bitter. So she went so far as to rename her name Bitter, right? I, uh, I emphasize that. So that was kind of where we meet Naomi as she's at that point. And then at the end of this story, she's fully redeemed. And actually, there's a, another uh, section I want to bring up that when the women are talking to Naomi, they mention, your daughter-in-law is better to you than seven sons. And that expression, seven sons, I, I highlighted it there is kind of a curious one, right? It doesn't, it seems like an odd thing to say. Um, but in doing kind of the research, what I found the consensus largely around is essentially this is a symbol for the perfect life, right? So in this time, it's a highly patriarchal society where male heirs are what continue the family line and give power. And seven is the kind of perfect number in, in that culture. So you combine that together and essentially what this is saying is, Naomi, you have a better life than the perfect life. And this daughter-in-law, who oftentimes is marginalized, left out, is actually so much better for you than anything you could have imagined. So Ruth's role as a redeemer for Naomi is, is pretty clear. It's, it's a shocking contrast when we get to the end and kind of see where it has all gone. Now, the key with this story is Ruth, in and of herself, could not redeem you know, Naomi on her own, right? She needs help. And that was where we started with their plan was to, to, uh, to marry Boaz. And Boaz then becomes, he emerges as the third redeemer in this story. So again, you have Ruth, sorry, you have Naomi who invests in Ruth, redeems her. Ruth sticks with her and in the end redeems Naomi. And together they are redeemed by kind of the formal redeemer of the story, which is Boaz. And to understand this a little bit better, it's helpful to understand the culture they were in. So there was a, a provision that the Israelites had um, that you can read about in Leviticus 25. So if you want some riveting, you know, post-lunch reading, you can read Leviticus 25 and you can see it laid out in perfect detail. But essentially there was a plan that God had for his people that through this a relative could buy any of the land that a, a, a relative had, had sold out of desperation, right? So it was a way to protect someone. So if, if, if you, uh, in this case, right, we have a Limelech who sold his property, a relative of his could come in and buy it back and essentially restore the land to his name. So it almost feels like a little bit of like a, a modern day um, kind of pawn <laughs> kind of scenario, right? 
But it was much more meaningful than that because it was a provision that could keep families intact and also ensure, you know, somewhat an equal distribution of, of wealth. And so there's a lot of insight there that maybe could be applicable for today, but I'll leave that uh, for Jerry when he gets back. Um, and we'll, we'll move on. But the point is that Boaz is the formal kind of kinsman redeemer. Here they say guardian redeemer. is a very specific term. But he fulfills this role that a relative um, could. And when he assumes the family debt, that land goes back to the family. So it's an important distinction because it stays in Elimelech's family's name, not Boaz. So he buys all the debt without kind of that end output of it. And, and it's that reason that the first, uh, we, we talked about in the beginning of chapter four, which we didn't read, there was another relative who had an option to be the redeemer. And he declined because he was concerned that doing so would diminish his own inheritance and his own economic outlook. So Boaz kind of in giving up of himself fully restores this vision. So you can see there's a beautiful image of Boaz as this redeemer. And he takes Ruth in, right? He covers her with her wing, right? We talked about that image uh, referring at first to God because Boaz says, may the Lord cover you with his wings. And then she's like, hey, Boaz, you can also do that yourself, you know? And so he's literally kind of doing both. He's the hand of God in Ruth's life, in Naomi's life, and bringing that, that first or, and that full redemption. Now, the story doesn't end there with the birth of Obed it actually ends with a genealogy. And I think that genealogy is really important because it points us to the fourth redeemer in this story. So when we go through this, this story of Ruth, we see that you have Obed, who, um, who ultimately has a grandson, David, right? And David, we all know, was the greatest king of Israel, like the man after God's own heart. I think the only person that was ever stated that. So a very special person. But David was from this very small, again, this town of Bethlehem. And there's still yet another redeemer that comes. So here's the key Sunday school question for the day. What other baby came from the line of David and was born in the town of Bethlehem? Jesus. Yes, very good. So Jesus is this fourth redeemer, right? Not, not explicitly written in the, in, the, in the text here, but pointing, right? That genealogy is pointing back towards Jesus because Jesus is the real end of the story. That's the power, the meaning behind it all. And so like Naomi, right? Jesus restored our relationship with Yahweh, with God the Father, right? We have our faith through Jesus. We become right with God again. Like Ruth, Jesus gave up all that he had to come alongside us. He shed his glory to live in relationship with us. He pursues each of us. He seeks us out. He moves in our hearts. Jesus leaves the 99 to pursue the one lost person among us. And similarly, like Boaz, Jesus assumed our debts. He paid the debts for us so that we could be restored and live life to the full. It seems to me that Ruth is one of the best illustrations we have of how God builds for his kingdom. We did a, a series, I think two series ago, maybe Scott, right? Where we talked about it was building for God's kingdom. And I love the story of Ruth because it shows this so abundantly clearly. If you recall, after Adam and Eve sinned, God made a promise to Adam and Eve. And he said, through your descendants, I will destroy evil and restore this fallen creation. 
And he takes that promise, that covenant, right? Again, a covenant was a formal transaction. And he takes that covenant and he re, kind of reissues it with Abraham, with Moses, and throughout the Old Testament Israel history, he redeems this promise. And right through here, through the story of Ruth, you see the same thing happening. What I love about this idea of kind of covenant theology is you see God's promise, and it has an ultimate, ultimate ending, right? His ultimate promise that started way back in the Garden of Eden was Jesus, it was redemption. But as he goes through history, he knows, right, we have short attention spans, we're prone to whining, we're prone to complaining. He gives little, like, down payments of that promise as you go along. And you see that through Ruth. So he reissues the covenant, again, through Abraham, through Moses, keeps going. And you see that here, like, the, the picks back up. It's after these guys. It's a bleak time, right? Who would have thought that the covenant line of Jesus was, you know, on the shoulders of two foreign women who had absolutely no options left, right? And were at the, the end of any options that they had. And I think it's, it's a beautiful example of that. What it also shows, though, is how key relationships are in God's kingdom building. So God obviously can do anything, right? But he chooses to use us in the process. And it's something that always kind of strikes me because there are a lot of times I think, oh yeah, God definitely should use me. I got a lot to offer. And then I think of how stupid that sounds, right? But then there are other times where I'm like, why? Like, why he could do anything? Why is he using such imperfect people, right? It's such a slow process, seems like such a winding path, kind of like my post-English career, right? It wanders all over, but God uses us in powerful ways. And what's really neat is that he uses us in that. And as you see in Ruth, as they invested in someone else, it, it, it kind of, they, as, as you redeem someone, they end up in, in turn redeeming you, right? So Naomi redeems Ruth, Ruth redeems Naomi, Boaz redeems them, and then through their offspring, they're all ultimately redeemed. And so this process is a, it's a redemptive cycle. It's a, it's a continuous process. Um, and it shows to me the, the vision of discipleship that ZPC is, is so strongly founded on. One of the things, we came here from Chicago five and a half years ago, and one of the things that struck me was the mission statement and how everyone here seemed to truly want to live it out, right? And if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it's right here on the front of your bulletins. It says, called together by God to make disciples and release them for service in our broken world, right? It's this sense of making disciples, releasing disciples, but you've got to come back and start it all over again, right? You see that in this story that the redeemed becomes the redeemer and the redeemer becomes the redeemed and it just keeps going over and over. And we are called to play that same role. And Ruth really shows that clearly. And so now that we're, we're at this point, I want to offer two points of, of application. And one's really just more of a literal observation than it is application, uh, but we'll start there. And I can't help but read this story and not think of our current climate, right? Ruth was a poor, widowed immigrant, a woman in a highly patriarchal society who had absolutely nothing to offer, um, but Boaz invited her in and saved her. So I, again, as you think of this story of the power of the immigrant, I can't help but think of the debate that's raging on, right, in our country and around the world. And I'm not making a political statement here by any means. Believe me, I don't know what the right answer is. But I think what the Bible does teach us very clearly is that God has a heart for the outsider, for the marginalized, and he calls us to be known for our love. 
So as we listen to the, the kind of the arguments that rage, and there's, again, no clear or easy answers, I think, yeah, I would just urge us to wrestle with that fact and to, to, to again, be challenged that we're known by our love and how that love is shown is, is different, kind of in different ways. But I, I just want to bring that out because I think it would be a miss if we go through this whole story about the immigrant woman and not, not think of that context in our current day. I made a lot of people nervous when I mentioned that at the first service, so my second point of application is much safer um, and is, is a little closer to home, right? But before we, before we get there, I did want to read one, one other quote I saw this week from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's been one of my favorite authors and theologians. If you don't know him, he's got some great work, but he wrote Life Together, probably as, at least that's what I always think of him, which is a, you know, a pinnacle work on the power of community, the power of relationships. And I saw a, a quote here today that he, that he wrote that said, God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and broken. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if God loves the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken, we're called to love them too. And by the way, that same description is us as well, right? Let's not forget that we have nothing to offer on our own, but through God, through Jesus, he can use us. Um, so I wanted to, to share that as, as a good reminder. And, and, and I love this calling today. And I love the fact that we have the parlados here um, uh, in the offering because they've taken this call from Ruth of going out and coming back in really to a far extent. And I love it right? They have gone far, far away to bring others in, and they talked about their discipleship model, right? I forget the numbers. I should have uh, written this down, but, you know, they have, let's say, 10 disciples who then make 10 disciples, and, and this is how God's work's done. And so what I want to leave with you all today is a conclusion and a, and a challenge to use your relationships to build for God's kingdom. And this is no strange um, you know, reminder for us. It's very similar to what we hear a lot about, right? That we're called to go out and bring others in. It's this idea that Jerry's mentioned sometimes as respirational, right? Breathe out, breathe in. We go out, make disciples, bring them back in. And so we've all been give, given different relationship skills, right? All of us are wired differently. We all have different personalities. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. Some are gregarious. Some are quiet and soft-spoken, but we've all got our own way to connect with people and build for God's kingdom. And I would challenge you to think of the ways that we can do that. And one of the things I love about ZPC is we have a heart for doing this and provide lots of options to do that. Um, but I would really challenge us to think about the ways that you can do that. Again, whether it's you know, being a good neighbor, as Jerry talks about, or whether it's bringing food to someone who's in a difficult time, right? My wife is an introvert and, and, you know, loves people, but being with people drains her, right? So she needs people in limited doses, but she is an amazing cook and has an amazing heart. And one of the best ways she can build relationship is through food. Um, and I can see as this jacket is fitting more and more tightly on me, uh, I can, and the benefit of that. But again, we've all got little things we can do, whether it's, it's here at church, working with the children, right? Or whether it's um, helping with brunch, or cleaning up the dishes from brunch, right? Because all of that helps foster a relationship in an in a, in a environment of uh, hospitality in, in community. 
And I'm part of a, a team that's looking at how we do this at ZPC. Um, and so we built a team together that, that's looking at that. And again, there's lots of parts to this and everyone has a role, right? Whether you're you know, comfortable just walking up and talking to strangers or whether you'd rather sit behind the grounds. The, the key is that we're called to be invitational. We're called to bring people in and be welcoming. So when we have people in, and on average at ZPC, I think we have about 10 people a week um, who come in for the very first time to ZPC. And that doesn't include children. So kind of 10 people representing other families in, in bigger numbers who've come in for the first time. And as Jerry shared before, within about seven minutes, some of this research has shown that they know if they're going to stay. And I think a good part of that decision point is what the people are like who are inside here, right? Again, Jerry's mentioned um, quite a few times that for good or for worse, it's not the preaching that they see in seven minutes right? It's us. And so I would encourage you all to think about how you can use your relationships here at home, here at ZPC, to bring others in. And sometimes it's just as simple as actually looking for the opportunities. Um, I had my, my kids here in the first service who are now 10 and 8. And every third Sunday, my wife works as a NICU nurse. So she works overnight and isn't here. So I have them with me. And as I try to meet new people, uh, they start to get irritated with what my daughter calls my chit-chatting. Um, and maybe there's an element of pure chit-chatting, right? This isn't all like, uh, you know, doing, just building God's kingdom stuff here. But what I decided was instead of them just nagging me all the time, when are we going to go? When are we going to go? I've enrolled them in the help to help me find people who look like they don't really know anyone else or not engaged. And so what I've done is I've bribed them that for every family that they can find that seems, strange, uh, it seems new or unengaged or disconnected, they can have an extra donut. And all of these donuts later, as an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old, they've been experts at finding people who don't seem connected, right? And so each of us, it just starts with looking and then engaging. And again, I know not everyone that's your sweet spot. I'm very comfortable be talking to new people, as Leah would say with my chit-chatting. But not all of us are called to do that. But I share it as an example that we should be challenged here um, to build for God's kingdom through the relationships we make that were invitational and welcoming. So in many ways, as we, as we wrap this up, I would just remind us that the story of David and of Jesus began with two women, Ruth and Naomi, who had forged a relationship with each other. And in return, they were welcomed in by others. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that we would invite each other into our lives so that they can be changed, and in return, we also can be changed. And in the process that all of us would grow every day to look more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this community at ZPC. I thank you for the challenge that that can present. Lord, I pray that each of us would be intentional looking for the outsider, whether it's close to home, whether it's far away, that we would be known for our love, that we would go out and invite others in, that we would share your truth and your love and that through the process, we all would, would evermore uh, grow to look more and more like you. I lift all this up in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew.